This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another wonderful week of the power of the Parsha. I want to make a few special announcements. First of all, we've got a, par- uh, a sponsorship this week um, on behalf of the Kowalski family for Cherna's 80th birthday. May God bless her with 50% more than she already has. And may God bless us all to be able to reach a, a ripe old age like that and be able to see children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and to be able to see so many of the people that we inspired and taught growing to become, because Cherna was a teacher for many years, and so many of her students are all around the community. So I want to say big uh, happy birthday. You should see Zoha to see again 50% more life than you've already seen. Okay, actually, let's, uh, let's say 55%, right? Because of, of you know, tax and, and shipping and handling. So you should live to 130. Okay, next, I want to say a big thank you to Jeff Dell for literally zooming in on this class. He's sitting at the beach in Florida, and he's saying, I'd rather be watching Rabbi Burnham talk about the Parsha than... The beach and the, and the waves rolling in. So big yasher koch to Jeff Dell. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, I also want to say thank you to every one of you who's here listening today. You guys are awesome. And for those who are not listening right now as I'm speaking it in live, but those who will be listening into it later um, on Torah Anytime, and I want to thank the amazing staff over at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for their incredible dedication. And I want to thank um, the amazing staff over at Partner uh, Torah Anytime it's an app, it's a website. Now listen very carefully, guys. I don't do this. I really don't. However, I, this year I am doing a, uh, a charity campaign. And what I'm doing is I am trying to raise money for Torah Anytime. They have provided Klai Yisrael, the Jewish people, with over, over 10 million hours of Torah content this past year. And over 10 million hours of Torah content in the previous year, in 2020. And they want to now up that to double it. And that's going to be done by buying a studio and investing in developers and all that. They're incredible people. And they do it all. L'shem Shemayim. They are a global yeshiva. Where else are they providing 10 million hours of Torah content a year? And I feel deeply appreciative both as a consumer. My entire family listens to Torah anytime. My wife while she's cooking for Shabbos. My daughters while they're doing their homework. Myself while I'm driving. I also have the honor of posting my stuff on Torah Anytime, my classes. And Baruch Hashem, I know that people all over the world are listening to it because I get comments and emails about it. It's incredible. They're doing an amazing job. So if you'd like to join, I'm going to, uh, my personal link, I'd love for you to join my page because I'm going to try to raise about 10 grand. The uh, website would be charityextra.com slash Torah Anytime. I'm going to put it up on the bottom slash Torah Anytime slash Laby Burnham, L-E-I-B-Y, B-U-R-N-H-A-M. I'm putting that in the chat right now. But um, please feel free to join my page and donate. I'd really appreciate it. Okay, let's get down to Binnett. Now, I've got a story that is so fresh off the press that even though I had my whole sheer planned out for today, I'm like, okay, I'm going to move everything aside. We're going to introduce this fresh off the press story, okay, and, uh, and then we're going to go to the regular program. However, we can connect it to this week's Torah portion. Now, 
The story has a pre-story that happened a bunch of years ago that was quite publicized in the Jewish people. However, I'm going to say it again because it's relevant because you've probably forgotten it by now because the story happened like three or four years ago. And it's also relevant because we're going to do a, an extension of that story and we're going to bust it out a whole new level. So, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. A number of years ago, a man came in to what is considered to be today probably the greatest living Torah sage alive, Reb Chaim Kanievsky. I mean, look, there's many different types of Torah scholars. There's people who are known for their piety. There are people who are known for their Torah wisdom. There are people who are known for their Hasidic followings. Reb Chaim Kanievsky is a man who studied Torah his whole life without interruption. I mean, for 70, 80 years, he did nothing but study Torah. He used to finish the entire Torah every year and then write a book uh, every time there was a leap year because he had an extra month. He, absolute brilliance. Today, he's sought out by everybody in the Torah world. A man one day comes to Rav Chaim Kanievsky and he breaks down crying. And he says, Rabbi, I need a blessing for my child. I, for, 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 for having a child. I, I, my wife and I don't have any children. We've tried everything. We've tried treatments. We've tried this. We've tried that. And we're getting desperate. It's been 12 years. It's been 15 years. And, and, and we don't know what to do. And he's getting all worked up and finally He's like, Rabbi, I'm, I'm, I'm not leaving the room until you give me a blessing. Rabbi, you need to give me not a blessing. I've gotten so many blessings from so many rabbis. Rabbi, I need you to promise me that you'll give me a child. Please, Rabbi, promise me. Promise me. Promise me that you'll give me a child. Promise me. Now, of course, we can all understand where he's coming from, right? The pain of not having children, especially in a community, an Orthodox community, where everybody has children and everyone's talking about it all the time. It's very, very difficult, very, very challenging, very painful. And he, I'm sure he has gotten blessings from everybody. And he really wants, he wants, Rabbi, I don't want a blessing. I want a promise. Please, you got to promise me that you're going to... Tzaddik goes there, Baruch Hu There's a concept that when a tzaddik makes a gzera, when a tzaddik decrees something, Hashem carries it through. So, what's going to be? So, Rav Chaim Kanevsky says, look, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm not a miracle maker. I'm just, I'm just a regular person. You, you came to the wrong person. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't help you. But, I'll tell you what can help you. If you can find somebody who was deeply offended by other people but did not respond back in anger, ask that person for a blessing. Why? There's a Gemara that says that when a person is shomeach herposo, when a person is embarrassed and blasted and, and, and made fun of, People who are embarrassed but don't embarrass back, Hashem forgives them of all their sins. Why? Because Hashem runs the world measure for measure. So just like this person did not take the person to task, even though he was deeply offended by the person, and he let it go, he forgave him, so too Hashem says, I won't take you to task for all the things that you've done, I'll let it go, I'll forgive you. So if Chaim Kanevsky says, go find the person who was offended, but didn't respond back, didn't offend back. That person is pure of sin. That person's totally free and clear. Go to that person. Get a blessing from him, and you're golden. So he walks out of Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky's office, and he's dejected. You know, in his mind, he had a whole plan. He's going to go in there. He's going to storm the office. He's going to tell the rabbi, I'm not leaving until you give me a promise. 
and he was going to finally get reprieve from this thing that's been plaguing him and his wife and his family for so long, and he had such high hopes. And what did the rabbi tell him? I can't help you. I'm sorry. Go get a, go get a blessing from somebody who was offended but didn't offend back. Where am I going to find that guy? Okay. That night, this gentleman goes to a wedding. Weddings are difficult for a person who's been married for 15 years without any children. Because you're seeing your friends are starting to marry off their own children. You're seeing the chassan and kawa, the bride and the groom, surrounded by nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters. But this is a very good person, and he was always trying to be happy with other people's joy, even though he did not have the joy that he was hoping for. So he goes to the wedding, and he's sitting at the wedding. And you know, a wedding, you meet people from all over that you don't know before. You know, so... He's sitting at the table, he's schmoozing to the guy on the right, he's schmoozing to the guy on the left. Suddenly, a man comes barreling into the hall and makes a beeline for his table. And he goes over to the guy sitting right next to him. Okay, so the guy who needs a blessing from somebody who was embarrassed but didn't say anything back, somebody comes barreling into the hall and says, You! Are you Ruvain Smith? And he's, whatever his name was, he says, yeah, he says, Do you drive a gray Mitsubishi Galant? License plate number 7942168. It's like, yeah. He says, You sicko, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't think I'm a sicko. I, I don't think anything's wrong with me. Can I help you? He says, Can you help me? You goneth? You smashed your car door into my car. And you didn't leave a note? You didn't leave your name? You didn't leave anything? You made a dent in my car door? And you just walk into the wedding like everything is fine? Shalom alai nafshi? Like nothing's wrong? What's wrong with you? The guy says, Sir, I, I don't know who you are. I came to this wedding. I didn't dent anybody's car. You know, I, I did notice that the car next to me had a dent. But I didn't dent your car. And, and I don't know what you're talking about. Now, of course, for us, we're looking at this story in hindsight. What ended up happening, I'm sure, was somebody pulled into that spot, opened up the door, opened it up very strongly, dented the car next to him, said, oh, my gosh. And then, unfortunately, just pulled out of the spot, went to a spot down the road, parked over there. In the meantime, this guy, Ruvain Smith, unsuspectingly, comes into the spot, sees a car with a dent next to him, goes into the wedding. And now this guy is yelling at him. He's like, you thief. You dented my car, and you won't even admit it. He's like, I, I didn't dent your car, sir. I didn't dent your car. He's like, hold on a second. He says, guys, this is the middle of the wedding, by the meal. Everybody, everybody, look here a second. Do you want to know what a ganif looks like? You want to know what a thief looks like? You want to know what a liar looks like? Like this guy right here. He dented my car, he didn't leave a note, he didn't leave a message, he didn't leave his phone number, and now he's even denying it. You know what it's like to have somebody dent your car and run. This is the guy. If you can imagine the embarrassment, you're at a wedding, okay? There's hundreds of people there that you don't know, that don't know you, and suddenly this guy is calling you out like that, and he's, <laughs> he's embarrassing you tremendously. And this guy is turning every shade of pink and purple and white and blue. He, his embarrassment is tremendous. What's, but he doesn't say anything. He says, I'm sorry, sure this happened to you. You got it. And finally, the guy just storms off. 
as soon as he storms off. The man who has no child, who Rav Chaim Kanievsky said, you need to get a blessing from somebody who has no children. Sorry, somebody from, you need to get a blessing from someone who was embarrassed, but didn't say anything back. And he left Rav Chaim saying, How's that ever, how am I ever going to find this person? Boom, this person is sitting next to him right now by the wedding. And the man with no children breaks out in sobs. And he turns to the man next to him. He says, Ruvain Smith, please, I beg you, give me a bracha that I should have a child. Please, I beg you. My wife and I were married for years. and We've tried everything. We can't have children. And Ruvain Smith is looking at him like, I'm not a rabbi. I'm not a Torah scholar. I'm just Ruvain Smith, you know? He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Please, I'm begging you, give me that blessing. Please, please, you are the person who can give me blessing. Today, Rav Chaim Kanievsky told me just today, this morning, that I need to get a blessing from somebody who was offended but didn't offend back. You are the man. And the man says, okay, fine, I give you a <laughs> I don't think I'm the man, but I give you a bracha. I give you a bracha. You should emir Tashem, your wife should be blessed with a ben zachar, a boy, within the first year. And sure enough, a year later, his wife gave birth to a healthy boy. And at the bris, this man got up and told the whole story and said that the reason why I'm telling this story is people need to know about what the power is when you are embarrassed and you don't say anything back. Okay, now this story was a story that happened a number of years ago, probably four or five years ago. But it went out, it was viral, the story went out, everybody in Klai Yisrael heard about it. It was a very famous story. I said it over in my class as well. You may have heard it from me, but again, it's four or five years ago, so you probably forgot it. Don't worry, I probably forgot it too. Okay, now, how did, how did the story get resurrected just recently? I was on the phone with somebody. I was calling somebody up. I wanted to ask them to contribute to the charity campaign that I'm trying to raise for Torah anytime so that they can continue to push out Torah content. Like I said, they did 10 million hours of Torah last year, which is just incredible, and they want to start doing 20 million. And you know what? You would say most people would say, you're crazy, you can't do 20 million. But if you can do 10 million, if you've got the ability to do, 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 to do 10 million, which is such a miracle in its own right, you've got the ability to do 20 million. So, again, that's charityextra.com slash Torah anytime slash Lady Burnham. And I'd really appreciate it. Now, so I call somebody up to donate. So he says to me, okay, he's going to give him Rich Shem. He's going to give a very nice donation. Baruch Hashem. But he says, I got to tell you a story. You're going to love this story. He says, yesterday, my brother-in-law calls my wife. So it's, a, you know, his brother-in-law is his wife's brother. Calls up my wife and says, do you want to get a bracha now from a very special person? She says, of course. He says, get a bracha from this person right now. Okay, what are you talking about? So he says like this, I was in shul this morning in Lakewood, a big shul full of a lot of people. And there was a person who was here collecting funds from Eretz Yisrael. A mitzvah delivery machine. That's what we call people who collect funds because they go around from house to house offering people the opportunity to do a mitzvah. Amazing. So he is a, a, a mitzvah delivery machine here from Eric Yisrael, and he was collecting money. Now, for whatever reason, there was another person collecting money in this shul in Lakewood. And the other person felt like this person 
was on his turf, was collecting on the same rows as him. I don't know the rules exactly of how to collect, and there must be certain unspoken rules. When the first guy goes in, the second guy doesn't go in until the first guy is finished. I don't know what the rules are. I don't know what the etiquette is for people collecting money. And in Ritzem, I should never have to know. But I'm sure there's some sort of unspoken rules. And I guess this guy went against the rules. And the other person starts yelling at him in front of the whole shul. He starts yelling at him, what are you doing? You're going in here and you're asking people for money, but you don't have a right to be here. I was here first. And he starts yelling and screaming at him in Hebrew. Most people in the congregation don't even speak really Hebrew. They have no idea what's going on. All they can see is somebody being yelled at, yelled at in front of everybody. Now my friend's brother-in-law sees what's going on. And the other man just sits there and he takes it. And he quietly walks out of the shoal. So my friend's brother-in-law immediately follows him out. And he finds the man in the coat room just sobbing. And he comes over to him and says, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. I don't know what happened. I'm so sorry. And he starts telling him his story. He says, look, my whole life, I was a teacher. I made a living for my family. But eventually they replaced me with a younger teacher, as often is the case, unfortunately. I mean, sometimes it's the right thing if the person's out of touch, but many teachers who are older are actually more in touch with students than the younger teachers who are not as caring about the older teachers. But whatever it was, the bottom line is, he had been a teacher for many years, he had supported his family, but he got replaced by a younger guy, and now he has no way of supporting his family. And this is his first time coming around to America to ask people for money, and he doesn't know. He doesn't know the etiquette. He doesn't... He doesn't he doesn't know what to do. So he must have stepped out of line. And this guy was yelling at him and screaming at him. So my friend says to him, look, he says, first of all, I'll give you a donation. You know, I want to give you something. But also, if you could please give me a bracha. Because he remembered the story that happened to Rav Chaim Kanievsky four years ago. And he said, look, you were yelled at, you were screamed at, you were embarrassed, you were humiliated, but you didn't say anything back. And you just walked out. You're a very holy man. Can you please give me a bracha? Sure, I'll give you a bracha, no problem. So then my friend's brother-in-law calls up his sister, they get the family involved, okay? Now my friend is a very, very generous person. He decides, I'm going to donate $1,000 to this guy, right? This guy gave his family blessings, he says, I'm going to donate $1,000 to this guy. But he says, more than that, I want to see if I could buy... If I could buy this zechus, I want to buy this merit. What a powerful merit it is to be humiliated, embarrassed, and not say anything back. The Talmud says when you do that, you get total forgiveness for all your sins. So he says, I want to call up this guy, and I want to buy this merit. So he calls up his friend who lives in Lakewood, and he says, listen, this gentleman is going to be at this and this shoal tonight. I don't feel it's right to call him up over the phone and offer him to buy a mitzvah over the phone. It's like, I, I feel like it's a little bit coarse. But let's, me and you, let's be partners in this. Let's buy this guy's mitzvah. The guy says, you know, a great idea. How much do you want to spend? They agree they're each going to give $2,500. Okay? They're each going to give $2,500 to offer to buy the guy's mitzvah. Here, a guy came to America to collect funds. He's already getting donations. I'm going to give him $1,000 regardless just because I feel bad for his story and he gave my family blessings. I'm going to give him $1,000 regardless. But 
I, I, I want to offer him $5,000 to see if he'll sell us this incredible, incredible mitzvah. But we can't do it over the phone. You'll go to the show where he's going to be at later tonight, and you'll go and you'll ask him. Deal. Done. What happens, though? So first of all, my friend calls the guy. He says, look, I'm going you know, I'm, I'm to give you my credit card number, whatever, right now for $1,000, if you can give me some blessings. But he's not going to mention anything about how later tonight my friend will approach you and ask you to buy the mitzvah. So he starts schmoozing with the guy. You know what the guy says to him? The guy says, you're not going to believe it. Somebody just called me and offered to buy my mitzvah for $5,000. But I said to him, Chas v'shalom. I said, what a, my greatest thing that I'm going to come back away from America with, I may raise money here for my family, but the greatest thing that I'm going to come back to Eretz Yisrael with is this incredible schos. I was made fun of and I didn't respond. I can't sell it for $5,000. I can't sell it for any money in the world. But here's the amazing thing. My friend had not yet offered it to him. That means there's two people at least in the world, two different Yidin, who were offering to buy this guy's mitzvah for $5,000. Mi ka'amcha Yisrael. Who is like you, O Jewish people? Number one, the fact that we cherish people who are embarrassed and don't say anything back. In the world out there, you know who we appreciate? The guy who punches back. I don't take it sitting down. You want to you get in the ring with me? I'm going to get in the ring with you. You want to make fun of me? I'm going to make fun of you. You want to go down and dirty? I'll go down and dirty. That's like the, the, the big world out there. You, fun, you punch back ten times harder. You want to come at me? You best not miss. Because I'm coming at you. In Judaism, we respect the one who takes it, absorbs it, and doesn't say anything. That's step number one, how we as Jews appreciate that. Step number two, that there are people who actually follow through on that. Step number three, that there are people who recognize the value of people who do that and shower them with money. Step number four, that there are two separate different people that will offer the guy $5,000 for that mitzvah. And step number five, that the guy said, absolutely not. That's a priceless mitzvah. I'm not selling it for any money in the world. Boom. Shakalaka. It is good to be a yid. Now, can we connect it to this week's Parsha? Absolutely we can. Of course we can. Because in this week's Parsha, Moshe Rabbeinu, okay? Moshe Rabbeinu has a couple different stories we see about Moshe Rabbeinu. Story number one, Moshe Rabbeinu who was raised in a palace. Life was good for him. Everything was good. But he goes out to see his brethren and see their troubles. And at one point he sees an Egyptian and he, uh, who's beating a Jew. And he kills the Egyptian who's trying to kill the Jew. Step number one. But what happens the next day? He comes out again and he sees two Jews fighting. And he says to them, Hey guys, <laughs> don't Russia, you wicked person. Why are you beating your friend? Why are you trying to beat your friend? And they punch back at him. They're like, oh, you're the, you're the guy who killed somebody last time. You're the killer. You're going to talk to us about what's right and what's wrong. You're going to talk to us about what's moral and what's immoral. What, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? What does Moshe say? Doesn't say anything back. He says, I'm nervous because I see people in the Jewish people are speaking Lashon Hara, and I know that there's nothing more toxic to the Jewish people than Lashon Hara. But does he say anything back to those people? How dare you talk to me like that? I saved someone's life. Why are you belittling me? He doesn't say anything. Moshe takes it. And of course, Moshe ends up being lifted to incredible greatness. 
So that is the connection of these stories to this week's Parsha. Mi Ka'amcha Yisrael. Next. I heard another story this week that I just got to share. I just got to share this story because, sorry, Advar Torah. It's also not what I wanted to speak about, and it's a little bit out of order, but it's on this week's Parsha as well. In this week's Parsha, we see the greatest Jewish leader of all time being the, the, the genesis, the beginning of that man. And that man, of course, is Moshe Rabbeinu. The story starts like this. There is a little baby that's born. Long story about how he's born. The story of Amram and Yocheved and so on and so forth. But he's born, he's put into the water, and the Egyptian princess ends up pulling him out of the water. And she names him Moshe. Ki min hamayim mishisihu, for I have drawn him out of the water. Now, my question for you is like this. In Hebrew, if you want to describe somebody as being drawn out, what would be the appropriate way to say that? Now, you're all on mute, so you can't really answer anyway. But I'll tell you the answer. The answer is, somebody who is drawn out is called mashoy. Mashoy, drawn out. The word Moshe means one who who draws out. Again, the word for someone who is drawn out is Mashoy. The word Moshe is one who draws out. So if Tzipporah, the daughter of the Pharaoh, was naming Moshe, she should have named him Mashoy, the one who was drawn out, but instead she names him Moshe. What's the idea behind this? She was saying to him, I drew you out. Now your job is to draw everybody else out. Sorry, 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 sorry. That's a parabatya. Exactly, very good. Um, that's a very, right. And some people pronounce it bisya today, I noticed. When I was a kid, it was always known as basya. But it seems like people are pronouncing it bisya. Maybe they found the kudos in the midrashim. Um, but anyway, the bottom line is, is that she, the daughter of Paro, not Sipara, very good, basya, she names him Moshe. Moshe means to, the one who draws out. She's saying, look, I drew you out of the water. It's upon you now to draw everybody out. And wow, how prophetic was that? How amazing of a name was that? How much did Moshe feel his calling his whole life long? My job is to draw other people out of their troubles. And he became the greatest redeemer that the Jewish people has ever seen. We have to look at life like that. I, the, the reason why I today am a rabbi and the reason why I today teach Torah is because somebody, his name was Rabbi Yisrael Steinwurzel, and there was a few other Rabbim as well, who taught me, and taught me with such beauty and joy of, of Judaism, they made me want to pay it forward and teach it the same style of Judaism, to pay it forward. The Judaism of love and joy and happiness, Hasidic bent. And he drew me out. And literally, my job was originally, I was supposed to be a lawyer. That was my, my family always thought I was going to be a lawyer. And then this rabbi, he drew me out and he showed me the, the, such a beautiful facet. Torah has so many facets, but the, the one that spoke to me most. He showed it to me, and I was like, okay, I want to pay it forward. So we all have been so blessed. Like Baruch Hashem, we've been so incredibly blessed right now. Anyone who's living alive today is so blessed just because you've basically lived in a, in a secure environment, in a society where you had all your needs met, pretty much with great shefa, with great abundance, we need to think about how am I paying it forward. Okay, next. Next. Okay. 
The story of the burning bush takes place in this week's Torah portion. So Moshe Rabbeinu, he runs away from Egypt because the, the Pharaoh wants to kill him because he killed the Egyptian who was trying to hurt the Jew. And he runs away and he ends up living in Midian and he ends up meeting this uh, man named Yisro and he's tending his sheep. And then one, the famous story, one of the sheep is running away and he chases down the sheep. And when he chases down the sheep, he miraculously ends up at Mount Sinai. Okay? The little sheep runs. Again, it must have been a miracle, because to run from Midian to uh, Mount Sinai would be a very, very long run, probably not within the capabilities of a little baby sheep running away from Moshe. But it was a miraculous occurrence, and he ends up in a... uh, And he ends up seeing over there, Moshe sees over there, a burning bush. And the burning bush is not getting consumed. So let's read it inside over here. Hold on. Here we go. Um, So he... um, Okay. Okay. Moshe was shepherding the sheep. We spoke of previous weeks about why the greats were always shepherds. He was shepherding the sheep of his father-in-law, Yisro, the priest of Midian, and he shepherded the sheep far into the wilderness. And he arrived at the mountain of God, Chorev, uh, which is, again, Har Sinai. And by again, the, the, the Medrash tells us the longer part of the story is that one little sheep ran away and he was chasing it down because he wanted to save its life and bring it back to the flock. And he ends up over here. By Yera Malach Hashem Elav Balabas Eish And a angel of God appears to him in a fire in, that is burning down the bush. And he, said, and he sees, He sees the bush is burning on fire, but the bush is not being consumed. Moshe says, I will go and check out this incredible sight. Why is this bush not being consumed? And Hashem sees that he checks it out, that he t- went off of his road to check it out. And God calls out to him from in the midst of the bush. And he says, Moshe, Moshe, and he says, Behold, I'm here. And Hashem says to him, Do not come any closer. Take off your shoes from your feet, for the land that you are standing is holy. And then Hashem says, I'm the God who took out your, you know, your God of your forefathers, Avim, Mitzvah, and Yaakov. And Moshe turns away from looking. And then basically Hashem says to him, I've got a job for you. I've seen what's going on with the Jewish people, and I want you to take the people out. Now, Okay, let's go through a little bit of, of interesting details. Number one, there is a, a, an idea that is told that this burning bush was there for years. Many people saw the burning bush. But people didn't stop and say, I need to figure this out. It was like, oh wow, this is cool, let's take a picture and move on. You know, there's a lot of natural wonders in the world. There's a, um, I think it's an, if I'm not mistaken, it's just in the, in the corner of Montana. It's this incredible mountain called Devil's Hat or Devil's Peak. Um, it's, 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 an incredible, it's an incredible protrusion of rock just like leading straight up. Um, 
Yeah, it's, it's uh, here it is. It's Devil's Peak. Devil's Tower. Sorry, Devil's Tower. Devil's Tower. We were just, I took my family in the first summer of COVID. <laughs> we're going to start counting our years by the years of COVID. In the third year of the COVID, I took my children to the backyard. Finally, we felt comfortable, comfortable enough to leave our house and creep out into the backyard. In any case, um, but we took our children on a road trip. It was after being basically in lockdown for the first few months. We finally, we bust out. It was after Shavuos. And we took our trip, our kids on a road trip. We camped in tents every night. Different, you know, every night we would, we would get to a campground. We would pitch the tent. We had like a whole system. One daughter and I would be in charge of pitching. We had two tents. And then I, we, one daughter was in charge of watching the kids. And the other daughter was in charge of making dinner with my wife. And then, you know, in the morning we would make dinner, breakfast, we'd make big, you know, eggs on the griddle and everything, and, and then we would fold up the whole camp, put away all the tents, put away all the chairs, put everything on the top, we had a roof rack, and then we'd set out and see amazing things throughout the day, and then at night we'd find a new place to tent, I mean, obviously I, pan- I planned it out, it wasn't like, let's, we're here now, let's find a place, we would try, of course, it was actually very hard, because a lot of the campgrounds were shut down because of the COVID, in any case, so we went all the way to, um, to Mount Rushmore, and it was good to see. I don't need to see it again. I'm done. I've seen, I've seen that. I came, I, I saw I conquered. I don't need to go back and see that ever again. But I really wanted to see Devil's Tower because Devil's Tower is an amazing, amazing thing to see. It's just this massive protrusion of like granite just sticking up. Like, like Imagine like a top hat, but just like sticking up out of the ground. And there's, there's, nothing, there's, there's just nothing else there. It's just there. It's got a flat top. It's wild. It's amazing. I didn't go because it would have taken us another, another hour and a half driving and then an hour and a half coming back, and all we would do is just be there like, oh, okay, I see it now. Okay, can we go back in the car? You know, <laughs> it would be one of those kind of moments. So we did not do the drive, but like, that's an amazing thing. There's all kinds of amazing phenomenon. How much time are we spending actually pondering and saying, what lesson can I learn? Let's take the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is an amazing thing to see as well. You come to the Grand Canyon, you walk up, generally when we do it, we used to do trips pretty frequently to that area, we would have everybody blindfolded and we would lead them from like, from like the parking lot. We would lead them right up to the edge of the Grand Canyon. So we'd have them all, like basically there's like a, a railing. We used to go during the wintertime. It's like dusted with snow and it's just extra gorgeous. And then everybody lined up and then say, okay, everybody just take off your, your blindfold. And everyone would look. It was like, wow, it's amazing. But is it just, wow, amazing, now I go back in the car? Or is it, wow, it's amazing, what lesson can I learn from the Grand Canyon? What messages can I take away from the Grand Canyon? Now me, because I write Shabbos emails every week, right? I have to think about these things. I have to think about what lessons there are because i got to write content. But, and I'm so happy that I have to write content every week because it requires me to think about what is the message and everything that I'm seeing and experiencing and going through. There's lots of messages about the Grand Canyon. The ability of water, just water, rushing water, carve out 6,000 feet into the depths of the, of the earth. That's an amazing, amazing accomplishment to recognize the power of persistent carving. Whatever we do persistently, we can have such a great effect. Ein Ma'amela Torah, the power of Torah. Torah always represents the humble one, the one who goes down to the lowest point. There's so many different messages we can pull from it. But most people just, they come and they see, oh wow, this is so cool. Wow. Okay, who's got the camera? Can we do some selfies? Okay, where's the souvenir store? Okay, I think we're done here. 
So that's not the goal. The goal is to really be able to get what you can out of life. Moshe Rabbeinu sees the burning bush, and it's not just like, okay, let's do a selfie. Here we are with the burning bush. Hey, my ticket. Where's the souvenir shop? Asura, no. I have to leave the path that I'm on. If I see something that's so striking, I need to leave the path that I am on. I need to leave the way that my life is being lived. Everything that I see should have an effect on me. That's Moshe Rabbeinu. Hashem says, oh, you're the kind of guy who gets off the road. I will call to you. But the Rabbeinu B'chayah says an amazing idea. The Rabbeinu B'chayah says that you can't be overexposed to spirituality too much at once or you will be overwhelmed. So Rabbeinu B'chayah says, if you look at the story, first Hashem sees, sends, it's just a physical phenomenon. It's a miraculous phenomenon. The phenomenon of a bush that's not burning. That's step number one. Something supernatural is going on over here. Your, your sensitivity is somewhat heightened. The next step is you see a malach Hashem. You see some sort of malach of Hashem. It's not Hashem himself. It's like an emanation of God. And then the third step is Hashem calls out to you, which is Vayikra. The first step is Vayikra. Hashem, Hashem calls out to him, and then finally Vayomer. Hashem is speaking to you. Multi-levels. It's a, it's a, you know what it's like? It's like if you somebody's living in the darkness and then you just flip on the light. It's going to blind them, right? They can't see. Their eyes hurt. By the way, here's a little tip. If you are in a very dark room and you want your eyes to get used to the light very quickly, okay? Good. Here's an important tip. Turn on the lights, but keep your eyes closed. Not scrunch tight. Keep your eyes just barely closed. So the light is filtering in through your eyelids, but it's not overwhelming. Keep your eyelids closed, but not scrunched tight for a few seconds, and then you can open your eyes, and your eyes will adjust very, very quickly. There you go. I take. I don't take uh, tips or any kind of form of payment or compensation for the Torah that I teach, but if I just teach you how to get through life better, for example, teaching you how to handle sudden lights on, whatever, you can definitely hit the tip jar on your way out. No problem. Anyway, anyway. Yidin, holy Yidin. So, says the Rabbeinu B'chayah, if you just turn on the spiritual lights on somebody too quickly, it could overwhelm them. So Hashem first sends a miracle, which is a physical phenomenon happening, but it's not normal physical stuff happening, so you should notice there's some spirituality here. Then you see a malach, then Hashem is calling to you in a very, in, in a sort of external way, vayikra, and then finally vayomer. So there's many steps for you to get used to it. And we also see with Hashem, when Hashem gives the Jewish people the mitzvos, when they come in Egypt, he already starts giving them some mitzvos. Bris milah, chodesh, carbon pesach, right? The month, the new month, the bris milah. He starts giving them some mitzvos. Then they get out into the desert and he stops in Marah. And in Marah, he gives them a bunch of mitzvos. And then they come to Mount Sinai and Hashem gives them the Ten Commandments and the mitzvos. But they're not all together at once. They're, they're sort of staggered. And then finally in Arvos Moav, the rest of the mitzvahs are all given over in their entirety all at once. So we see, and this is a very important mess, a very important idea. When you want to embrace your Yiddishkeit, which we should all be doing, we should all be embracing, we should all be challenging ourselves, we should all be pushing ourselves, we can't do it all at once. You got to do it a little bit at a time. Whatever you're, you know, when you have a goal, set yourself micro goals, become really, really good at your micro goals, and then set yourself for the next micro goal, and keep going and going and going and growing. Because if you take on too much all at once, it's not going to work. It's going to fall apart. So we see that Hashem is very sensitive to that too. 
Which, by the way, someone says, I always say to somebody, if someone comes to me and they're like, they're like Rabbi, you know, I, I was at your house for Shabbos, it was so beautiful, I think I want to start keeping Shabbos, right? Now, in very, 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 very rare occasions, it's appropriate for the guy to just go zero to hero in one second. Most people, it's like, you know what? I, I love the idea that you want to keep Shabbos. Why don't you start with Friday nights? Start with Friday nights. Make sure you guys light the candles. You do Kiddush. You don't use your phone. You don't, you don't, you don't cook anything. You know, you go to bed early. You read some Torah before you go to bed. You don't watch TV. Try that for Friday night. And we'll take it from there. But if you just let somebody just go all the way in, unfortunately, it's not going to work. So people say, how can you tell a person who says, I want to keep Shabbos, slow down? Hashem also is sensitive to this. Hashem, even when introducing himself to what's going to be the greatest prophet ever, does it in a very, very gradual approach. First, miraculous phenomenon, then angel, then lower level calling, then full on uh, prophetic calling. So that is the next idea from this week's Torah portion. Very important idea. Okay, um, another idea. So we see that the burning bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. And Moshe said, I need to understand this. Now let's understand. There's a law called the second law of thermodynamics. It's also called the law of entropy. The word entropy means breakdown. And the law of the second law of thermodynamics, also known as the law of entropy, states that everything in a system will always move towards greater chaos. Okay? Which basically means everything is always breaking down. You build a house, guess what? As soon as you finish building it, it's already starting to break. The pipes are starting to get heavy. The, they're starting to get eroded. You start, the first time you flush the toilet, the pipes are starting to get eroded. Right? The electricity wires are starting to get a little more brittle. The roof with the very first rain, is starting to get washed away, right? Everything about your house, literally, is in constantly in a state of falling apart. You yourself are in a constant state of falling apart. <laughs> no offense. I don't mean like violently, but we're all falling apart. Like, every breath, in the great words of Rush, every breath I take takes me one closer to my last, Right? And that's true, meaning we are in a state of, of disarray and, and, and chaos, and the body is breaking down. I don't, know if, I don't know if you guys know this, but do you know that you all get cancer every day? Did you know that? Here's the amazingness of Hashem's creation. You all get cancer every single day, probably two or three times a day. But your body, Baruch Hashem, fights off. 99.999999% of cancers, which is an amazing thing. Your body is on absolute patrol. But it, it, it makes sense that we get cancer a lot, right? Cancer is when things, you know, the cells start going a little haywire. And there's so many cells in our body, and, and it's part of the natural function of human beings that that happens. Everything in a, in, in a world is constantly going haywire. So the chiddush is not that something's burning. The chiddush is why is it not getting consumed? Moshe Rabbeinu looks at the world and he says, I want to understand why is this world not totally consumed? How do we still have a world? Now first of all, just think about all the fears that we've had. Right now we're in the middle of the global warming fear. And I can remember in 2012 being told that if we don't reduce our emissions by 50% by the year 2020, the world would be 
beyond all repair. I think we're here. We didn't reduce emissions by 50%. I'm not saying we should not be more mindful of the environment, by the way. I love the idea of being mindful of the environment. We know that HaKadosh Baruch Hu took Adam Arishon. And the Medrash tells us that HaKadosh Baruch Hu took Adam. And he said, let me show you this beautiful world. I created this for you. Make sure you take good care of it. So I'm all about being a good steward of the world, but in a way that's reasonable and sustainable. Not in a way that we just say we're going to, you know, I mean, look what's going on right now. Right? There, there was a, uh, a recent change in policy towards how we treat energy. And now we have the American president begging OPEC, the Saudis, and all the other people in the Middle East, please, can you guys produce more oil? When we could be, we could be producing it here, we could be piping it in from Canada in a pipeline that ultimately is safer than tankers. But instead, we, we're, you know, and, and, and the price of the pump is up by more than a dollar. So we, I think the problem is when we try to use environmentalism to do things in a way that's going to hurt people in the very, very real here and now. I think we need to be very, very thoughtful about how we incentivize people to be more mindful of the environment, right? I would love to see more X prizes, right? So like there was, an, there was X prizes the government would pay, you know, look at, this, look at right now what's going on in the space world, right? So you have SpaceX and you have Blue Origin, right? And you have all these companies that are literally doing the work that NASA used to do, right? SpaceX is a privately owned company owned by Elon Musk, okay? And uh, no, it's, it's publicly traded. Is SpaceX publicly traded? I don't, I don't think SpaceX is publicly traded yet. Tesla obviously is. I don't think SpaceX is publicly traded, but maybe I may be wrong. But the bottom line is, it's a, it's a publicly, it, it, it's a, it's a company. It's not a government, and they're doing more for space exploration today than NASA did. Again, sixty, you know, forty years ago, NASA was much more powerful. I'm a huge fan of seeing billionaires spend their money trying to figure out things for space. And it started with a prize called the X Prize. The X Prize was $25 million to the first group that can get a rocket ship into outer space, the same ship twice within, I think it was within 30 days. It was a $25 million prize and hundreds and hundreds of billions of not, sorry, hundreds and hundreds of millions of not billions of dollars was spent in research trying to win that prize. I would love to see us doing a lot more of that. People coming out and saying, we're going to give $100 million to the first person who creates a power plant that is economically viable, but more, you know, more um, environmentally sound. I would love to see that. But shutting down gas pipelines and, and doing that, I mean, we're all paying for it at the pump right now. So the bottom line is, I, I believe in us trying to be more environmentally friendly. That being said, how did I get here? Uh-oh. Here we go. This is once a class. I get a moment where I'm out on that limb all the way over the cliff. I'm trying to remember. How did I get here? Space race. Uh, cancer every day. Hold on. <laughs> Boom! Anybody can put it into the chat box. All righty. Back to... We were talking about... Uh, Oh yeah, how yeah? How does the world not? Uh, how does the world not blow up? Okay, so the world should be blowing up. The world is blowing up. So the, I know where we are. So right now, the big scare is global warming. In the seventies, there was a big scare about global cooling. 
There were scientific papers being written that we were going to reach a new, glaci- a new glaciation. The world was going to be covered by glaciers. Scientists were sent out to Antarctica to go measure the glaciers to show that they're getting bigger and bigger. So there was a huge scare of global cooling. There was a book called The Population Bomb. Not The Population Boom, but The Population Bomb. And it was also written in the 70s, and it described how right now there was like 1.5 billion people in the world, but at the rate that the world was growing, there was soon going to be way too many people, and we're going to have mass starvation events. Right? As soon as the world hit 3 billion, this book was saying, as soon as the world hit 3 billion, it just would not be able to sustain it. Right now, the earth is working as hard as it can to make enough food for 1.5 billion people. Once we hit 3 billion, we're going to see mass starvations where millions of people are going to starve just because there's not going to be any food for them. Guess what? We're getting close to 8 billion right now, and we still have plenty of food. We still burn food every single year because there's so much excess crops. Right? Now, of course, there are people in the world dying of starvation, but that's got nothing to do with there not being enough food in the world. Right? It's got to do much more with the fact that there's just not a way of them getting the food because they're in, in the control of warlords and terrible people. But the bottom line is there's enough food in the world right now, way more than enough food to feed 8 billion people. But yet all these people saying, there's not going to be enough food. The world, everyone's going to die of starvation. Everyone's going to die of global cooling. Everyone's going to die of global warming. Everything's breaking down. Now, the reality is, in the natural world, everything does break down. So Moshe Rabbeinu was trying to understand, how could it be that you have a natural world that seems to be always on fire? The law of entropy states that the world is always going to be burning down. How come we're not all gone? How are we still here? How have we not all been covered by tsunamis and volcanoes and... and, 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 and alien sharks and whatever, who knows what, you know what I mean? Like, how come we're still here? And the answer, of course, to that is that there's a greater wisdom that's running this world that is in control of this world, and that's God. And God's power is infinite. God can prevent global cooling, where the glaciers would just start taking over all the land, and eventually the whole world would be covered in permafrost, and we'd all be dead. God's got that. He took care of it already. Guess what? God can take care of global warming too. Now, of course, we have, again, we have our responsibility to do what we're supposed to do. This is not saying we can just dump all over the earth and, and, and dump garbage and chemicals and dump, dump everything we have into the oceans and all that and just expect, well, God will take care of it. We have to be responsible stewards of the world that God gave us. That is the measure. Hashem says to Adam, I took, look at this world. I gave it to you. Watch over it. Don't destroy it. Put it to your mind that you don't destroy my world. So we do have the power to destroy, but Hashem can take care of global warming. Hashem can take care of the population bomb. Believe it or not, again, all the scientists were in a, in a frenzy. We're not going to have enough food. Once we hit 3 billion people, mass starvations, and we're at 8 billion, and we're just feeding everybody just fine. I've got more food in my refrigerator today than people had in their, in their houses you know, 200 years ago. They, they didn't wouldn't dream of the amount of food that a person just has in their pantry today. Because you went out to Costco and you stocked up. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> can you imagine our grandparents stocking up in Costco? Anyway, so we live in incredible blessing. So Moshe Rabbein was trying to understand, how do you have a world that Lahora is breaking down? And every rule of, of nature and science says it should be breaking down. But yet, it's actually building up. So what does Hashem say? If you want to understand the deep secrets, take your shoes off. 
Take your shoes off. What do your shoes do? Your shoes numb you and separate you from what the earth is telling you. When you walk on the earth, you feel everything. You feel every rock and pebble. You feel everything that's going on at the ground level, at the surface level. Put on shoes, you don't feel it so much. Hashem's saying, if, if you want to really understand, be in touch with the world. You want to understand holiness. You want to understand divinity. Take your shoes off. Take away the things that numb you from the amazingness of the world and you'll see me there everywhere. You want to see why you have a world that's able to sustain itself despite all laws of nature saying it should be destroying itself? Take your shoes off. Stop being so jaded. Start feeling what the earth is really saying. Start seeing the miracles everywhere. We have, we have, you know, it's, it's amazing to me that you have so much denial of God in the scientific community because they are the ones who are standing with this. They've got like, you know, most people, they live in a house with small windows. Scientists are living in a house with glass windows. They can see the Neflos Habore everywhere. They can see the wonders of God's creation everywhere. They can see what's going on inside of a cell. Okay. Let's talk for a moment about what's going on inside of, not your red blood cells, but most cells in your body. First of all, they've got a wall. A wall that is, you know, today we have a smart home, right? A smart home. So, for example, you know, people can have a smart home. What what are different components you'll have in a smart home? So the door doesn't just open. But if you have the right, if you have the right phone and you have the right key fob, you just put it up to the door and the door opens. Your cells in your body have a smart wall. If you present, now, but I can only walk into the door of my house, even if it's a smart door, so I gotta take my key fob or my Bluetooth, whatever it is, and I put it near the door or my fingerprint or my, it looks in my eyes and knows that it's me and it lets me into the door. I can't walk that way through my wall. Your cell wall everywhere is a smart wall. Any part of your cell wall if presented with the proper credentials, will open up and allow particles in. And if it's not presented the pro- proper credentials, it will not allow you in. No entry allowed. That's step number one to your cell. Then you go into your cell. And you've got vacuoles. Vacuoles are these trucks that are carrying stuff all over the cell. Because even within your cell, which is so tiny and so microscopic, it's a whole world down there. It's a whole world. And you need trucks to deliver things around the cell. Those trucks are called vacuoles. But how do the trucks travel around the cell? Oh, there's this amazing thing called cytoplasm, which is like this, this liquid thing that just kind of moves around the cell at all times. Your entire cell has a conveyor belt taking everything around your cell. Amazing. So when your vacuoles, which are filled up with nutrients or whatever, oxygen or whatever it's supposed to be filled up with, it goes, hops on the cytoplasm highway and goes to wherever it's supposed to deliver it. Where's it delivering? What has it got? It might be delivering to the ribosomes, right? Which are these factories that produce hundreds of different types of proteins and enzymes on demand for your body. Doesn't need a retool. If you have a factory here in, in, in Detroit that's making Chevy Cor- you know, Corvettes, I know they don't make Corvettes, 
in Detroit. They make them in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I know that. But imagine if you had a factory making Corvettes here in Detroit, and then they decided they wanted to start making Silverados. They have to retool the whole factory, shut down the factory for a few months, and retool the entire thing. Your body, your ribosomes, we need this protein. That one, on demand, whatever you want. Just printing out, printing out products, whatever you need, on demand. And you got your mitochondria. Your mitochondria is refilling these incredible batteries. You have these batteries in your body called ADP, but the mitochondria shoves them with energy, and they become something called ATP. Your body is doing that, and then you've got you, you, you <laughs> you've got the Golgi bodies. There, there's so much your nucleolus carrying all your DNA, three feet of worth of DNA in every single cell in your body, stacked up in twenty three different towers with thousands and thousands of instructions for your hair color and your eye color. What is going on in your body? Can you look at that and not see God? You must have some very thick shoes on. You must have some very thick shoes on. You are not feeling what's on the ground beneath you. Hashem says, you want to understand how you have a world where the science is just crazy. You have a world that should be breaking down, but instead we see such incredible growth. Take your shoes off. Stop being so numbed by things that you're used to. We're so frequently numbed. I'm just used to seeing waters. I don't realize the incredible miracle of hydrogen and oxygen. Two different gases coming together to form water, the most life-affirming liquid in the world. Boom! By swapping and sharing electrons that are warring around at... Close to the speed, <laughs> closest to the speed of light. It, it, it's crazy. Do you realize what's going on in your body? Stop letting your thick leather soled shoes separate you from what's going on at ground level. And then you'll see me everywhere. And then you'll understand why you could have a world that's burning up, but it's still here. And when you get that, you get the secrets of God, the secrets of redemption. Thank you all so much for coming. Thank you all so much for listening, and thank you all so much for being awesome. Have a great Shabbos. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.